Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Authentic Messengers. My name is Catherine Van Wetter and I have been interviewing hosts throughout or I've been interviewing guests throughout the last several months. And again, I'll be your host today. Every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time, you can go to our LightSparks, AuthenticMessengers.com in order to be able to archive our show. And please also go to Facebook to AuthenticMessengers.com. If you like the show, please give a thumbs up and also leave a comment if you like. It's exciting. Just a few weeks ago, we got bestseller on the New York Times with our LifeSparks book. So if you're interested in getting a copy of your own, you can go to Amazon or to AuthenticMessengers.com. Today, I'm so excited to be interviewing Dr. Craig Weiner, who is passionate about the healing journey, both about what it takes to make real change and what it takes to allow healing to happen. He has a private chiropractic and EFT practice on Whidbey Island, Washington. After 35 years of exploring a multitude of approaches of mind, body, and spiritual health, he finds himself transitioning from healthcare practitioner to more teacher, facilitator, and mentor. His work includes writing, teaching, and training with his wife, Alina Frank internationally as well as maintaining a private practice working with individuals around the world. And welcome, Craig. I could have done a little bit of tapping in my opening there. Forgot to do that. (laughs) Hi, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. It's I as I was talking to you earlier, it's it's an interesting day with with the election as it is and finally coming to the end of almost a year-long division and polarization that's happened. And it's interesting how people take in stress and how it can become embedded and embodied into their cellular memory. So would love to talk to you about how it is um, that your work deals with stress and also with trauma and has your life always involved some aspect of healing or health? Wow, there was a lot there. Um, I'll start with um, where you ended there. Um, well, actually, no, I won't. I'll start with, yeah, we really are. I mean, we're not only a stressful day, but it's really been, you know, with the U.S. election over the last year, very stressful. Um, as you had mentioned earlier, apparently there's now a, a DSM official diagnosis for voter anxiety. Um, and we're in a time of uh, polarization, heightened degrees of stress, uh, people have gotten incredibly triggered during this election from uh, on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. With um, you know, we we're always dealing with and triggered by those things from our past. So people that maybe felt uh, those in their lives that weren't trustworthy, you know, many issues brought trust up in this election, and those many women that had um, been felt that they had experiences that were inappropriate and. Um, maybe misogynistic, et cetera. So, so many different things have been triggered in this election that, yes, our country is certainly in a, hype, a state of hyper-arousal and um, looking forward to putting this day behind us and moving forward. Um, your question about um, my life, I guess, on a personal level, you know, I've been involved in healthcare literally since um, right after I graduated college. So I was... Uh, mm-hmm. 
I grew up um, in New Jersey, and I grew up uh, pre-med. I didn't know what else being in healthcare meant, and I was interested in science, and I was interested in health and healing, and I'd started to read, you know, Silva mind control method and meditation things, and back in high school, and um, but after being in school for a number of years, I also realized that the path to just to being a medical doctor wasn't my path, and um, and so I put that aside. Was going to go into the Peace Corps and and work in South America in a healthcare capacity. And in the meanwhile, I ended up visiting a friend in Berkeley, ended up literally going cross-country on uh, the bus, landing in Berkeley, uh, finding myself still interested in pursuing a more holistic health, Berkeley being kind of the the crux of that for sure, and started as a massage therapist. And then from a massage therapist, then became a chiropractor, and from a chiropractor, interested in all kinds of spiritual healing dimensions, and then moving into energy health and EFT and so yeah I have to say pretty much my whole adult life has been in the area of healing and health and mind body interaction so it's all I know yes it's wow. a simple answer and you're you're so good at it I know the work that you and I did it it helped me come into the niche of working with highly sensitive people so not only do you offer your expertise but also profound intuition and empathy so those who have the opportunity to work with you are blessed well Um, i'd say it's actually moved more you know that it's still about really i guess i want to say healing more than health because healing really can mean such a wide variety of um, things for so many people and and as I'm entering more of a mentoring, eldering stage in my life and moving and working with practitioners um, which is what I do a lot of and uh, often most of my clients are healthcare practitioners whether they're coaches or whatever kind of practice that they're doing and assisting them in being able to be more fully themselves and might be regaining health, it might be regaining a healthy business or we're creating a healthy business because I do a lot of work with practitioners that are really um, trying to live out their passion and their vocation and their work and make a living at it and being able to thrive and being able to have the life of their dreams. So, so you know, I, I think also I had always loved teaching and that showed up in many capacities in my health as a healthcare provider. And I'd say at this point in my life now, my role as teacher, mentor, practitioner, is, it's getting to be a bigger piece of that. So thank you for referencing some of the work we've done. But um, it's something that I just love, comes naturally to me, and I'm passionate about. So so it's easy. And you've answered it some, but how did you know when or why transition from into the more of a practitioner and trainer? You know, transitions are interesting in life and career, aren't they? Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're very volitional, and I think people have a very clear choice and path that lays ahead of them, and sometimes transitions slap you in the back of your head, and sometimes um, they take a while to unfurl, and so... I would say I've had multiple um, opportunities to experience it in different ways. You know, I, my first transition was, I, I, you know, as a, as a young person was, I guess if I want to be into healthcare, I guess I'm going to be a doctor. 
Um, mm. So I had my first path that was, you know, I look at it like a like an airplane um, pilot. You know, you say I'm going from New York to L.A., and you think it's a straight line, but it's not. There's constant direction east and west and north and south and, and course corrections that you're making along the way. So my first destination of being a medical doctor was the was you know what I plugged in but about um three years into being pre-med study I kind of looked around it was actually this time of year it was a Hollywood it was excuse me it was a Halloween evening and I saw all the other students uh, that were pre-med there out in their surgical garbs and there was just (laughs) something deep in my soul that says not me and it just said that's not your path I know you set your intention on that but that just does not feel right anymore and then there was a period of feeling lost, right? So there was a period of, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to follow my heart. And that's kind of what led me to Berkeley, which then led me to um, an amazing massage teacher. Um, I followed that route for a while, and I was very happy with that for um, a number of years. And then there was a, a quiet part of me that started to become not so quiet and happy and satisfied and was, you know, had a great sense of inquiry and, and wanting to know more. And I started to feel that um, that shimmying happen inside that said, this isn't quite exactly right anymore. And um, I met some colleagues and people, um, one of which was a chiropractor that was the head of the clinic over in Northern California, the school clinic. And, and she kind of took me under her wing, and another chiropractor took me under her wing. And all of a sudden, this new something emerged. There were seeds laid down by an earlier chiropractor in my high school years, but but it didn't seem relevant for whatever reason. And all of a sudden it started to get very clear that this is your path. And as I started to research it more, it said yes. And so I dove into that. And, you know, I've been doing that for 25 years now. Um, wow. And then, you know, so, I mean, that was just fascinating how it started to emerge. And once I was in it, I remember absolutely passionate about it. And I would be taking my my books on vacation and reading my school books <laughs> on vacation. That's how much I loved the work and the education and what I was studying. And, and you know, that was decades and, um, mm-hmm. and continues to be. But then also other things started to emerge. And it's a much longer story, but um, I, I kind of like you had always been um, interested in many things. And as a chiropractor had always invited uh, different kinds of practitioners to speak to my patients and in the community. And long story short, um, one of them um, I'd been hearing about, like a little kind of bird had been chipping in my ear about this thing called EFT and tapping. And I'd read about it on, on, uh, online, but I kind of poo-pooed it and I put it to the side. And finally I said, you know what, I'm going to give this presentation. I'm going to find somebody um, in my area that does this thing because I'm interested. And I found somebody. I invited the practitioner to my office to give a, a talk. Uh, we met, we connected, uh, I found it fascinating. Um, she ended up being my wife. Um, and it was kind of, <laughs> that was a different journey that kind of took me from, you know, left field that came all of a sudden on my screen. Mm-hmm. And then that has just been absolutely fascinating. And it continues to evolve. And, and I, God willing, it will continue to do that way. And I'll continue to pay attention and keep my, you know, my finger on the pulse of what, I'm wanting, what I'm interested in, and now I'm just so involved in neuroscience and trauma, and, and that is what has my greatest attention. So, so I think 
as I slow down for a moment, I know I can speak fast, is that, um, that I think what's most important for myself and for anybody is keeping your thumb on the pulse of what is most exciting, what is most intriguing, mm-hmm. what is showing up on your radar screen and that's calling your attention. And I think by paying attention to that, that leads me to my next transition to whatever that is and whatever will be. And it's interesting because I'm struck with with the word transition. And oftentimes when folks go through transition, there can have that sense of abandonment, either folks around them or abandonment with self being kind of in that void of not knowing what direction to go in. And what we know is change is constant and transition is part of that. And almost giving oneself permission to change and wondered how, how it was for you as you shifted from role of doctor chiropractor into massage therapist moving into these different dimensions. I know you said it was lead passion, but the internal well, dialogue I, that Oh, are you kidding? Oh, oh, it's always positive and always clear. Not right? <laughs> I mean there's some of the transitions um took years and some of them were almost immediate and all of them were scary. Mm-hmm. On some level, I mean, I remember vividly, I mean, the early one, I remember when I was, um, I had decided to go to chiropractic school, and once I made that decision, it's like, okay, and um, my partner at the time said, okay, well, I guess um, the next semester starts in, what was it, it was January, and I was like, oh, no, 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 I can't start till January, I have to wait till next September. She <laughs> said, well, why? I'm like, well... Because um, school starts in September. She's like, no, it actually, the next semester starts. And I was like, no, 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 no. So I, mean, I remember vividly that, oh, God, I kind of made a wrong decision before. I'm not sure. I'm not ready. And, I mean, it was nerves. It was fear. It was, you know, doubts came up and all of that. You know, looking back, I can laugh at it now, of course, because it was very clear how all of the synchronicities and everything emerged. But that's not saying that even though they emerged, there wasn't fear and doubt and trepidation and and uh, those things so at least for me so i would say yeah. transitions you know we information comes to us in a variety of ways and you know mm-hmm. download however they do and and sometimes it shows up like a seed and that seed needs time and nurturance to you know to break the surface and then start to grow so you know i'm my personal experience is that those transitions some happened very quickly and some took many years to really come to fruition, um, role-playing who who I, who we think that we are and the roles that we play, the identities that we have of ourselves as doctor, lawyer, whatever career it is, doesn't matter. And if it then transitions to something else, that's letting go of an identity that's well-vested. So, um, yeah, I think I've experienced all of those and always with some degree of resistance, fear, concern, you know, mental... Um, mental resistance, whatever, you, and emotional, all of them, sure. Yeah, and it's it's so amazing how how many times people push up against what they know to be true, which is a change is happening, and digging in the proverbial heels and saying no. So just before we move on to, to the next question I have for you, what advice or what comments what bits of wisdom can you give someone who finds themselves doing something where they know it isn't feeding their heart or their soul and they know change is happening and all mm-hmm. the different feelings that you also 
just experienced as um, you had experienced, what tips can you give for folks who may be in that part of their life? Well, I think there are a lot of tools for assisting with the process. Um, the primary one that I use in that arena, arena where there's stress and resistance is EFT, is tapping. And, of course, there are many different approaches. Um, I think that, number one, we just have to honor um, whatever we're currently feeling. So um, that's where we have to start because that is what we're feeling. In EFT, you know, we have this kind of beginning phrase before we start tapping on these different meridian endpoints. It's like even though I'm feeling scared about taking this next step, even though I don't know if it's the absolute next right, next right thing for me, even though I have this anxiety about change, right? I mean, those feelings and those, those emotions and those body sensations are all valid because they're there. And I think first we just mm-hmm. have to accept them and honor them um, as being there for our protection. Um, and there's a reason while we're there. We have experiences in our past that say, change is scary and sometimes change doesn't work out perfectly and all of those things. So, you know, our current moment and our current feelings, sensations, emotions, uh, recurrent thoughts, et cetera, are based on our past experiences. So, so first I think we just have to, number one, witness them and be still enough to know what they are. Um, however, I also happen to think that one of the least effective ways to change them is to try to outthink them. No, I'm not really yeah. scared. I don't have to be scared of this change. I, I can just get over that and, and push through it. <laughs> and I think that's probably about the least effective method for um, creating transformational change there is. Mm-hmm. So that being said, yeah. um, you know, if you take the witnessing part to a deeper level and, and you know, and more contemplative, meditative awareness states, um, can start to bring us to a, a deeper level of self-compassion and awareness and, and I think moving into a heart space or a more right-brain-based right right place is a good start. But ultimately, for real change to occur and to feel differently about a situation, um, we kind of have to create a new tape, you know, that plays mm-hmm. in our mind and our brains. And, you know, thank God our brains are neuroplastic and thank God we can change them. And... But working with body-based modalities, EFT and others, that that can start to work with how we feel about a situation and notice that this is just the most current um, example of how we feel that way. And then mm-hmm. when we use, for example, EFT or whatever effective modality you're doing, we then often have to go back to where those tapes were originally recorded, and usually their childhood. And mm-hmm. so when we work to really change the way we feel about something, when we start to heal those places in the past and those original failures and those original places when we felt not enough, um, not worthy enough, not smart enough, not whatever, acceptable enough, that that's where real healing happens. And then we have less of that in different situations. I don't want to say it dissipates it. I don't say with big changes, fear doesn't come up, but it's less likely to stop you and it's less mm-hmm. likely to get in the way um, quite as much or as strongly or as frequently. So we become more resilient as we start to heal those um, past wounds for each of us. And it reminds me how many times people look outside themselves for validation or going in the right direction. So what I hear you saying really is it is totally an inside job. It is going to those triggers 
like the dandelion, the proverbial roots of a dandelion, in order to be able to stand up in the knowing and the perseverance and the resourcefulness to know. This is the direction, and folks will probably follow suit. Those who love you <laughs> will be able to listen and honor um, the step that one wants to take in a different direction. Sure, yes. Hmm. What do you what do you think are the most critical elements that allow for healing to happen, and how do you implement this as a practitioner? First, if you could explain what EFT is for those folks who may not, it's hard to believe, mm-hmm. who may not know what EFT is, sure. just briefly. Yeah. Okay. So, all right, two different questions. For, for those not yes. familiar with EFT, a lot of people, the official name for EFT is Emotional Freedom Techniques. Uh, many people know it as, as tapping because when we're doing EFT, we're tapping and um, tapping onto like tap, 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 tap with our fingertips on different meridian endpoints on the head and face and upper body. Um, and EFT is, is what's called a form of energy psychology, but what really it is about is working with um, the energy system, working with the emotional system, and working with the neurological system of the body in such a way that we really can create effective transformational change. So, you know, what does that mean? It means that um, it means that every time that I have a big career change in front of me, if we use an example, um, I get scared and I shut down and I and I don't risk taking a chance, right? And that began because, you know, when I was in sixth grade, um, I, you know, my parents moved me to a new school, and, and I'm making up a scenario, but we have, you know, I moved to a new school, I tried something new, it didn't work at all, and I learned that whenever you put yourself out there and you risk, um, you know, trying something new, it, it fails. And so those beliefs and those early memories that are um, emotionally impactful change the course of our lives and limit our lives because we tend to repeat those same experiences over and over, um, often unsuccessfully. So what EFT does is it works with those past negative emotional experiences and events that we've lived through, and it allows the brain, body, um, nervous system, brain, um, energy system of the body in such a way to really be able to change the way that we perceive the event, to change the way the body responds to the event when something like it comes up in life, to change the beliefs associated with that early learning. So um, EFT is just, you know, there's a ton of research. We're working on a film now about a documentary. But, you know, there's been over three meta-analyses. There's been, you know, over 25 randomized controlled trials, and we see effectiveness of EFT for PTSD, for anxiety, for depression, for physical complaints, from everything from fibromyalgia to um, chronic pain to um, phobias and addictions. And it, it really is um, amazing how effective it is in almost any situation in which stress is involved. I mean, that has to be mm. the, the, the dominant factor that's involved because EFT works to change and slow down brainwave activity. It reduces cortisol, stress hormone production, and we're really just starting to look at how it's affecting epigenetic influences, in other words, changing the way that genes express themselves. So the research is growing um, and very solid already. And just in my personal experience in my own life and my own clients, I've seen it affect change in physical health and relationship health and financial health. 
um, on so many levels. So, you know, we could have a whole discussion just on EFT alone, and I know that's not what this interview is about, but um, if that's something you're interested in, uh, EFTtappingtraining.com, we have all kinds of information on the science and research and articles and videos, all kinds of things. But I want to move on to the other part Thank of what you, you asked. For- Thank you for that. And the, to refresh um, everyone's memory, that what do you think are the most critical elements that allow for healing to happen, and how do you implement this as a practitioner? Well, I think one the, the first thing that pops out in my mind that I think is an absolutely essential part of creating a healing relationship or a healing context if you're a practitioner is safety. I think more than anything else, if you read the work of the trauma work of Bessel van der Kolk and so, and so much of the leading research and my personal experience is that uh, creating a safe space and creating a safe container for a person to be with and for yourself or a client is an absolute essential piece. And, and safety has, um, or feeling safe, has many obvious elements and many subtle ones. Mm-hmm. Um an obvious one is, you know, something like confidentiality, right? How can I feel safe if I think that you're going to go tell people something that I'm sharing that, that I'm feeling vulnerable about, et cetera? So uh, that's an obvious, but it does go into creating a safe space. Safe space means for me and uh, my clients is, you know, how I um, set up the context of our working relationship. Safety begins, you know, from a first contact and a first communication and a first um, email and telephone call um, to right through during a session of tone of voice, of the environment in the room, of how you ask me questions, of uh, whether I felt heard and listened to. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's so many different factors that go into creating a safe space, but I think it is probably the most essential one for healing to begin to happen. So if I had to name one, I would say that would be it. And safety is huge, especially so many people not feeling safe or on edge with anxiety and um, that sort of thing. So to to create the space where they are welcome, no matter who they are or how they show up, is imperative to everyone's well-being. I do, and I, and I think not everybody... I don't want to say is as sensitive to it, I think, is as aware of the importance of it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we're that our bodies and what we call the neuroception of our bodies, in other words, um, our nervous system, our brain, our amygdala, midbrain parts of our brain and nervous system have um, what we call neuroceptive skills. It means What it means is there's always a radar that we have on. It's always on. Um, while we're awake, at least that's always seeking, is is this space around me safe? Is there mm-hmm. a threat here? Am I in danger? And it's scanning everything from a person you're talking to face, to their tone of voice, to the environment around, if somebody's behind me. if some, All of those things are constant or a barrage of sensory information that we're taking in all the time to go, do I feel safe here? It might not even be a conscious thought at all. In fact, 90% of the time isn't. Like, I'm not thinking the thought, am I safe in this situation if I go in a room? 
But if I look at my body and I notice my arms crossed, if I notice that I'm standing in the back of the room, if I notice that um, who I'm interacting with and who I'm not and whether that was a conscious choice or why I made that choice, these things are happening below the level of consciousness all the time. So I think as a practitioner, we have to lead the way of creating a safe space, not like we're waiting for them to ask for that because some people are more sensitive to know it's something they need and some are not depending on the nature of lack of safe experiences in our life before that and the amount of trauma and negative experiences we've lived through that makes Mm -hmm. us more sensitive to the need for safety. I remember when I was learning heart math and we used instruments to gauge how somebody was feeling physiologically and someone would be in a place of what we'd call coherence where they were balanced and someone would walk behind them and immediately they went into out of coherence. That sense, the body, as you're saying, the body memory. So it's, it's so such an exquisite map of how to operate in the world and being conscious enough to be aware physiologically that that palms are sweaty or the mouth feels warm, um, dry mouth, whatever. So it's, I suppose part of what you're also saying is your work also helps people become who may not be aware, become aware of the subtle shifts in, in their body or Right. I think it's important. I, I don't think we want to be dominated in our life by constantly being monitoring every moment, right? So I think that that could be overwhelming as well. So I do think that there's a balance and awareness mm-hmm. and watching and being aware and sensitive to our physiology shifts so that we can take care of ourselves. And, you know, you know, I think about this. Um, this could be obvious for somebody that, let's just say, has been the victim of something bad, and so they are very conscious whenever they go out in public or whenever they're alone at a dark night in the street. or You know, these are more obvious um, signs. But if, uh, you know, somebody grew up, um, oh, and they were artistically leaning or they were musically inclined, and, um, and early on they got the message from key people, parents, teachers, music teacher, whatever, that they felt um, put down, um, unskilled based on things that were said or done and then they become very sensitized to that kind of feedback and they don't put themselves in situations in which they might get that kind of feedback i see this for example practitioners all the time that have this fear of putting themselves out there this Mm -hmm. fear of not wanting to be seen this fear of wanting to be authentic, but on the other hand, not being um, having this resistance to put themselves in situations where they might be vulnerable or um, kind of out in the limelight. So this is something that on one hand could be as obvious as the first scenario, but we don't realize the degree most people has been my experience to which safety determines what we do and don't do in our lives and what risks we take or don't take or what opportunities we grab or don't grab in our practices, in our businesses, because the internal interoceptive uh, feedback is this doesn't feel safe, so I think I'll choose this. This this I like better. This I'm more comfortable mm-hmm. with. And mm-hmm. so I think that, honestly, it's happening all the time for us. We just may not be cognizant or aware that it's happening. And uh, to reiterate a little bit, I recognize as with learning any new skill like beginner's mind, we notice in situations 
not that it's 24-7, but noticing in situations where there could be increased heart rate or there could be that sense of fight or flight. So, Mm -hmm. and then to go about one's life um, to be able to implement that. Thank you for that explanation. What are some of the greatest challenges you or perhaps anyone who is a healthcare provider faces these days? You mentioned some of it, but what are? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's an interesting question because um, I'm actually working with a colleague right now, and we're working basically on a class that's um, going to be for healthcare providers. And the question is really, um, what does it take for um, a doctor to become a healer, um, from doctors to healers, that that kind of transition? And and it's not that it's just for doctors, but for healthcare people. And and the idea of um, what does it take um, within the healthcare field the way it is now, um, what are the challenges we face, and to really have healing happen, I guess that's really what mm-hmm. I want to say. And um, there are a lot of factors, right? There's, um, you know, depending on what field, in the field of medicine, and et cetera, what profession, but time is certainly a consideration, because part of creating safety is allowing some time to unfold for safety to be felt and experienced. And, of course, we live in a time in a managed care, health care time where, you know, to get more than 15 minutes is rare. Um, <laughs> so certainly a challenge is um, that there's not enough time that many um, health care providers have to be able to allow connection, rapport on an energetic emotion, psychological and physical um, platform to be able to evolve. So that's so that's one. Um, other challenges is certainly you know challenges of reimbursement and financial. And you know we we just live in a very very challenging time of what are we worth and what is the value of any particular intervention. And and when we involve insurance companies and third parties, I'm I'm not offering um, what should happen. I'm just speaking to the challenges that are out there. Mm-hmm. I think that um that that's that that's a great challenge um that needs resolution. I think availability of care um is another huge one especially in the in the United States. So we're we're in a challenging health time the the um what I love however is that healing can happen and it doesn't require any one particular intervention. But as I see more and more practitioners emerge that understand the nature of creating safe space, as more and more practitioners of all different, you know, we train psychologists. We just came out of a training and there's a medical doctor, two psychologists, uh, counselors, um, coaches, um, EFT coaches, a, a real diversity of um, practitioner. And I love seeing in that space there really weren't any egos there. Everybody was just bringing different skills and really all understanding and coming to deep, more deeply understand the nature of how trauma affects who we are as human beings. And by creating a safe space and applying effective techniques, whatever they are, that um, profound healing can happen. So it can happen um, people by themselves, but often in the space of another um, what's called the interpersonal neurobiology, the the physiological changes that happen as a result of kind of the neurological interaction and reading and that we and the sensing of how 
we are in the regulating activity that happens between two beings when a safe space is created. Um, so I'm very excited about the opportunities as I watch healing start to happen in so many different ways, and it's also very hard to watch um, in our country a lack of access to health care and a lack of ability to um, to know how to find these kinds of opportunities and modalities. So, yeah, all of that. So in lieu of sometimes people not feeling deserving to be paid for service or ones who feel that they're not able to afford service, how, what would be something you could tell someone who question, you know, because the whole survival of I can't afford it yet, if they right. keep going down the path they're going, they won't be well, around. It, it, so. Yeah, it's really, really important, Catherine, because on one hand, um, finances is a very real issue to have access to um, ways to improve our health. Fortunately, not all forms, not all health requires another person, right? There are a lot of things we can do for ourselves. I'm not going to say it doesn't require any money. I mean, eating well still requires money, whether it's buying the seeds and growing food yourself or being able to purchase nutritious foods, right? That is mm-hmm. something that needs to be considered. Um, finding, but when we start to look at self-help techniques, and you know, EFT is one self-help technique, many different contemplative um, and meditative type practices um, are showing tremendous gains with literally being able to change our physiology, our brain, our health. So um, on one hand, we need to be able to, we live in a time of information, right, of great information with the Internet, but you have to be able to have Internet access, a library or um, however we can get that. Um, opportunities like meditative practices, opportunities like EFT where you can start to learn um, and, you know, we have resources on our website, but there are many, um, to be able to start to find some of these techniques to be able to self-apply and move toward healing um, are a great first step, you know. Mm-hmm. And also with the recognizing the work, for instance, of Gabor Mate, who talks with trauma and also addiction, the importance of community and being yes. within safe yes. community connection um, is imperative. Wondered what you wanted to say in regards to that. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I think what I want to say about that is support is absolutely um, so important um, for making real change, and support can look differently for different people, right, than for each of us. So, support can be, a, you know, one person that's a real support to us can make all the difference in the world. Um, but that also, we also don't want to put all that responsibility on any one person. Um, community support, you know, I have the gift of living in a community where there's just huge, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking on this election day as I read online and Facebook, et cetera, about people that feel isolated, whichever the party mm-hmm. Um, that they feel like an island of not like-mindedness and Mm -hmm. how um, lack of resource they feel being in that kind of a situation. And that raises, you know, that contributes to raised anxiety and stress, et cetera, levels, where being in a community of support where there is a sense of ability to be oneself, to feel relaxed, to not feel threatened, to feel safe, to feel understood, to feel seen, to feel 
like-mindedness is um, is a huge advantage, I believe, for mm-hmm. the ability for us to regulate ourselves and stay calm and healthy. Um, you know, but I also understand there are places, you know, when people have unique conditions and diseases, and there's a place where support groups um, can be incredibly supportive and helpful. But I also know that given the nature of trauma things and trauma, that sometimes just having a group of people repeating the same story and not allowing for um, transformation, transition to occur can also keep us stuck. So community, you know, community in itself is neither good nor bad. It just depends on is it community that's supportive of our greatest evolution and, and next steps or is it, com- is it a community that, um, that doesn't support that and holds us back. So it mm-hmm. really, really varies. And you brought up an interesting point with people repeating over and over again the I am, I am addict, I am traumatized, I am a victim, I am, and wondered with the work you do, um, if someone finds community rehearsing and saying over and over again who they are and they recognize that it's not serving them, do you work with people who, I know you too, but um, question with folks who want to step away from from who they think they are through the identity? You talked a little bit about it briefly, but wondered how someone does break away from that I am sense. Well, I, I mean, it, 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 yeah, it, it brings up a lot of different thoughts. Um, one that, you know, I have been privy to is, for example, a, a population of, let's just say, veterans, right, coming mm-hmm. back from Iraq and, you know, there's been so, so much trauma, so much PTSD, so many suicides, so many sad stories. And um, on one hand, coming back to a community of support is absolutely essential and critical. But when we just, you know, the nature of trauma is the more that we repeat and speak about our stories, the more hardwired it, it gets into our brains mm-hmm. and nervous systems and physiology. So, um, you know, the allegory, and I've asked about this, and, and I have had it reported to be true because I've heard it many times, but in, depending, of course, on the indigenous culture and tribe, et cetera, um, the, sta- the story goes that if somebody, were, a warrior, were to come back from war, um, I've heard one, two, or three times, but basically they got to tell the story of the war no more than three times, once to maybe the their family, um, once to um, the elder, and maybe once to the shaman. And that was mm-hmm. it. And then the story mm-hmm. wasn't repeated again because the more the story was told, the more it was ingrained and hardwired. And then, of course, there would be whatever ceremony was prescribed for moving the trauma out, moving. And identity, you know, identity isn't bad, um, but if how we identify ourselves is in a negative or limited way, as in the I am, whether it be a career that no longer serves us, or I am not good enough, or I am not mm-hmm. smart enough, or however, if we identify ourselves in a limited way, or even the I am a victim of a condition, an experience, etc., and we kind of repeat it that way, I think we have to be very careful with our verbiage, um, with the use of words and diagnoses. I've written articles on you know, to diagnose or not to diagnose because there's inherent um, usefulness and consequences um, as well. could be if I'm mm-hmm. using um, a way to describe the experience of what I am have going on in my body, then it can show up as a temporary thing. But there is a, 
you know, a morphic field and a resonance and a knowing that when you have this condition, it goes on forever, and now I identify myself as a victim of MS, arthritis, whatever that is, then that tends to have a label of that's who I am. It's not what I have, it's who I am. And that makes it solidified and very hard to think about what it could be without. Is it possible for me to be without mm-hmm. the identification with that diagnosis, condition, position, etc.? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a tricky one. On one hand, diagnoses and labels can help to inform up to a point, but then they tend to limit, constrict, and um, and not allow us room to not be that. Right. And just because there's a propensity towards some illness or disease does not mean that you're going to get it, <laughs> as Bruce Lipton said so beautifully. Is... So I've, that's a... a great segue for wondering how do you take care of yourself so as to best create a context for those who come to you to heal? For me? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I'll speak for myself and, and, and everybody's certainly different. I think the number one thing that any of us can do um, for ourselves, whether we're, you know, whether we're in the healing arts or not, is it always begins with me. I mean, I almost want to say, I, I use the phrase um, humorously, but um, it really is all about me. Um, and it really is, because that's the lens through through which I see the world. So even if it's something I'm referring to that's outside myself, it's still my interpretation or my experience or relationship with that thing. So it's always about me in relationship to the other, whatever that is, Um so, therefore, the only thing that's in common with everything I experience is me. So, it, the work and the healing has to begin with me. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think that's a continual process. It um, it doesn't ever end. Um, I don't think that that's negative. I think that's part of why we're here as human beings. I think that um, that our own healing, we often, you know, we're, we're, of course, the analogy of layers of an onion, and we start off with the big layers first. They're the ones on the outside. And as we do our work, we get more and more subtle and lesser and lesser amounts of onion skin are there because the onion's getting smaller. But like those Russian wood dolls, they just keep getting infinitely smaller, but it doesn't mean that they ever completely um, are eradicated. There's um there's a body of work. I'm a, so I'm a EFT trainer and a matrix re-imprinting trainer, and that's a... Uh, another form of um, tapping work. And in that, um, the developer of the work hypothesized that we all real, we all have at the core one primary deep wound that we're spending our lives learning to heal from on many different layers and levels and with experiences. And whether it's the I'm not good enough wound or whether it's the I'm not lovable wound or what, so, you know, there are core wounds that affect um, most of us, and everybody's different. But he would say we don't ever really fully, completely eradicate them, but um, the amount, how frequently it shows up gets diminished. How largely dysregulated emotionally and defensive, et cetera, we respond in any one situation certainly gets diminished. Gets diminished. Um, it would be interesting. You know, interesting to have a conversation on this with, you know, like the Dalai Lama, and it's like at what level can somebody still 
cause a triggered response? What would it take? And, and over time and practice and introspection and, and healing on whatever methods we're using, that those become required less frequently. They become, um, mm-hmm. we become calmer, we're more coherent, we're more balanced, we're in that state more and more of our time. When I teach a trauma course online and we talk about this optimal arousal zone and it's this degree to which I'm awake, I'm clear, I'm present, I'm grounded, and less and less circumstances can send me off spinning, right? And less mm. and less things. Um, and stimuli and experiences and people and events can send me, um, can throw me to the ground, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I would say best taking care of self means continuing to do one's own personal work. Um, right. And having, you know, the next part of that would be how do we constantly resource ourselves? What are the things we do that feel good and nurture? Um, my relationship um, with my wife, Alina, is an incredible resource for me. Um, time we work and spend together, you know, not only helps me to heal myself, but to be a place that I can deeply be myself and relax into. But it's mm-hmm. also gardening, and it's also um, other things that we do in, in the evening and relaxing in bed in the evening. So, I mean, there are a variety of things in my relationship and personally that I have you know, meditative practices and other things that are resource for, resources for me so that I can be at my best and um, be as balanced as I can be. And restorative, for sure. What are some of the greatest obstacles and opportunities to learn from in your career? What have been some of your greatest obstacles and challenges? I think that, you know, in 25 years and thousands of patients and clients and a variety of things, is um, that there are those that um i'd say here's what i would say i would say that the greatest challenges come in ones that resemble triggers of my own past wounds right in mm-hmm. other words whether it's a patient or a relationship um ones that when pieces of my past were not integrated and healed that people showed up in my life in my paradigm in my matrix that reflected that which wasn't integrated and healed yet and so at those points in my career that it presents that opportunity of a, of a reflection of my past that still needs more work, it shows up as a current obstacle mm-hmm. until that part is healed and then they can show up and it's no longer an obstacle anymore. So I'd say that my life is always a, uh, a radar screen or a manifestation, manifestation for that which needs work in my own personal life. So using the skills that you have to be able to integrate or to honor that wound that has come to the surface for your attention, because obviously it's there to serve you. Mm -hmm. Sure, and I think it's a great one of the greatest challenges for those people uh, that are practitioners in the healing arts, because we will of course attract those issues showing up in people that are not resolved yet. The compulsion Mm -hmm. to repeat. Repetition syndrome, so many ways to describe what Freud had talked about, is when we have early, especially early wounding and early traumatic adverse experiences, is that part of our psyche, soul, however you want to look at that, will continue to present the same opportunities over and over until we heal that, because it wants us to be whole. There's There's that drive to heal that which is not accomplished and healed and integrated, and so we will continue to present in our lives opportunities to resolve it until 
we do with whatever tools and ways we've learned and experiences that we've gained to be able to heal that and integrate, and then it doesn't need to show up that way anymore. Or if it does, we don't even recognize it because it's not an issue anymore for us. So, and I yeah. think how many times people can just say, ah, it's happening again and becoming a victim or pushing it away or distracting rather than saying thank you for showing up again. Yeah, because it doesn't show up you know, automatically for us to say thank you opportunity, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, why does this keep showing up in my life on some level, right? And guess what? It will continue to, you know. Mm. It's just it's the way it works. So as we as we pull this interview to a close, how do you see your work, your life work continuing to evolve in the future? The word that comes up is listening, is continuing mm-hmm. to listen to my attraction factor, to where I'm pulled, to where I want to be, to what I'm drawn to. And I hope that the lag gets smaller and smaller over time. I feel myself attracted and interested, and I follow that. And my life circumstances allow for me to continue or change or morph to allow to follow that. Um, So I see the work uh, I'm doing. Um, I see that I'll be traveling around the the world more as more opportunities come up and are requested for me to teach and train. And together with Alina, that's that's something that brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction. Mm. I see um, creating more, um, having more time to write, having more time to create, um, like I was doing earlier today, and more opportunity for that. And um, because I'm interested in many things, and I, so I love coaching, I love mentoring, I love writing and creating, I love research, I love those things. So I would say that um, I don't want to predict exactly how that's going to show up because I feel that limits the options. Um, so I like listening and seeing if I stay in tune with what my passion is, I'd rather let God, universe, field, whatever, to be able to bring me the opportunities that um, that are meant for me to play in next rather than go, I want to do that. And, and that's what I want to do. I mean, once I'm not saying that there's no volitional um, choice about it, but I'd rather kind of put it out there, this is what I love, see what shows up and then choose rather than force and make something to happen. And, and I find life much easier and much less stressful and much more joyful um, when I'm able to do that well. Well, and you're a wonderful representation of that, and I'm, I'm honored to, to know you um, as a professional and also as a friend, and grateful that you took the time to be with me and the, our listeners today. The best way for folks to get a hold of you is www.efttappingtraining.com. Is that the best? It is. Yeah, that's that's our website. If you look at the home button and it says Craig Wiener, you can always schedule um, a 15-minute consultation with me. I'm always happy to do that. There's no charge to see if that, whether it's mentoring or coaching or interested in EFT training or any of those things, yeah. Um, and my email is craig at efttappingtraining.com. So I'm easy, I'm easy to reach and... Um, easy to find on Facebook, etc. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And for you listeners out there, if you found this show interesting, please come on to our Facebook page, AuthenticMessengers.com, and leave comments. And next week, November 15th, I'll be interviewing Kathleen Gage, who is a no-nonsense, common-sense online marketing strategist, 
speaker, author, production creation specialist, and who helps entrepreneurs make money online. She has been successfully self-employed since 1994. She gives her clients the tools to create businesses that last and make a difference at the same time. So please join us. If you're not able to listen in live, then you can go to our archive show, blog talk forward slash authenticmessengers.com. And as we wrap up, be kind to each other as we made it through this election period. Be kind to yourselves. Be gentle. Know that you're loved and know that you are loved. Take good care. Thank you, Craig. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Catherine.